I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. Australia's early education sector is about children's learning and well-being in the first five years. Educators and teachers have qualifications and training that are focused on children's education. Yet the sector also plays a largely unofficial role in supporting families. This could be as simple as providing resources on parenting, through to much larger and more complex roles with families that are particularly struggling. But we know that the sector and those that work in it aren't even given enough support to do the job they're qualified for. This episode, we're going to ask the question, should early education services even be supporting families? So it's good to be back after a fortnight off. Um, I think we, we all reached the, the point where we needed that. And it's uh, just Lisa and I tonight, Leanne, is still struggling through the last remnants of her PhD. But it's good to be talking to you, Lisa. <laughs> it is. But it'll be good once she actually becomes a doctor and then, you know, can waste time with us again. I know. It's just a bit frustrating. She she seems to think, you know, getting you know a PhD, getting a doctorate is you know, more important than bantering with us every fortnight. I know. Where does that did... come from? I know. I mean, I'm sure, look, sure, a doctorate gets, you know, professional respect, you know, huge qualifications, huge kudos, but I'm sure she gets good things from us as well. I can't think of what they are right now, but, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure they're there. We occasionally are nice to her. Occasionally, occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally let her get a point in. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she'll be back soon, we can promise, and I think we'll be back to our regular fortnightly schedule for a little while. Um, but the topic of the episode tonight is, I guess it's could have deliberately provocative title, uh, which is, Should Early Education Services Be Supporting Families? Uh, so this has come from a blog post I put up uh, a few weeks ago now, actually maybe even over a month ago. Um, who knows what time is at the moment in the world of Sometime COVID. Sometime in 2020. Sometime in 2020. Um, and it's one of the sort of deliberately provocative ones I like to put up occasionally, which is sort of taking on some of the, I don't know, what is it, bugbears or pillars of the early education sector. I like to I like to do that. We'll include a link in the show notes. I won't go through it uh, sort of too in-depth, but I might set the scene with that post, because that's going to sort of frame, I think, the discussion tonight, uh, and then we're sort of going to talk through that. So the post for me came from a discussion I had with a colleague in the sector uh, talking about the approach with families. So uh, I'm going to go back even further, I think, now. This is going down the rabbit hole. But we, uh, at Northside, the, the organisation I work for, uh, we run five early education centres in Canberra, and we just put out our new strategic priorities document. And... I was sort of sharing it with someone in the in the sector and they were interested that the families were barely mentioned and that they weren't a priority in and of themselves. So there are four strategic priorities, uh, quality, uh, educators, uh, advocacy and uh, leadership. And families weren't... So mentioned. children didn't get a look in either? <laughs> well, children are, are weaved all through in there uh, and children are usually the first thing referred to in all of those, but families are barely referred to, referred to at all. Um, and this person was kind of interested, saying that was really unusual for early education organisations. And I was sort of explaining that one of the reasons that that was done was quite deliberate, which was trying to uh, fight back against the tide of what 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 many in the organisation I work for see as this um, real focus on families to the to the sort of um, sort of overbalancing the focus on children. And I got into this great email discussion with this person who I'm really grateful for, and it sort of prompted me to get down some of these ideas uh, in blog posts. And, and the post sort of refers to a couple of incidents I've noticed in my time in the sector where, you know, educators and particularly directors will put their hands up to 
you know, do sort of more work with families to sort of say, you know, this is a great bit of research we could share with families. This will help us support families, you know, more with sleep issues and all these kind of things. And I kind of just stopped myself and thought, you know, why are, why are educators and directors doing this? They're so overworked. They're so underpaid. And as well as then doing, you know, the work they're actually qualified for, which is children's services, they were then taking on this work uh, sort of I, in the blog post, I sort of referred to, to them as also almost unofficial social workers uh, supporting families. I, I sort of talk a bit about my time as a director, and I remembered, you know, families coming in. You know, often in one one family, I, I very fondly remember literally putting their feet up on my desk and uh, sort of talking at great length about what they were going through as families and actually looking for direct support. Uh, and one of the things, and and the the blog post was sort of again trying to be a bit deliberately provocative. And one of the things I talked about was the an, a great advocacy strategy, which has been used throughout history, which is the withdrawal of labour. So my my sort of view was that, you know, directors, if we were serious about, you know, advocacy outcomes, would kind of withdraw this labour, would stop doing this for families. And then let's see what happens to society. Now, the conclusion I reached was that, of course, this won't happen. The sector is too ethical and too uh, grounded in sort of moral uh, you know, capabilities around working with children and families that, of course, that's not going to happen. But it was more an idea about thinking, why does this work take place? And I guess, you know, is it actually the role of early education services in our society to be providing this uh, this sort of direct support to families? Um, and my view at the moment, and I'm looking forward to potentially being challenged a bit on this by Lisa, is that until educators and directors are paid properly, supported or qualified to do so, that it probably is best that we don't do that uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, Lisa, I know we, we, when we were sort of thinking about topics for this this episode, um, you, you definitely wanted to sort of, I think, chat about some of the points raised in the post. So we might get into some of the, in, you know, in-depth in later on, but, you know, do, do any of these points resonate with you or is this a topic you're particularly interested in, in tackling? Look, they do resonate with me, but when I read the blog post, I'm like, normally when I read your writing, so I went, nah, nah, I disagree <laughs> with this. I almost did my famous, yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. <laughs> um, but for, and for interesting reasons, and like we're kind of still on the same side, but I'm coming at it from different points of view. My main... Um, well, I'll leave my main reason to last. But firstly, I think it's impossible to just advocate for children while they're at your centre. You can't care for children, try and, you know, teach children, encourage children's learning while they're in front of you and then just absolutely ignore what happens to them the minute they walk out of the door until they come back in the door the next morning. Because what happens there impacts how much teaching you can do and how much learning the children can do. And if shit's happening there, then it's going to impact upon what's happening in front of you. That's the first thing. The second thing is about um, it's actually a role that educators can take up as the like I always suggest to people that one of the ways um, educators can advocate for themselves and can market their service is by writing a column about children for their local news newsletter newspaper 
And I want educators in doing that to accept the fact that they are the experts on children not to five or not to six or, you know, if it's a middle-aged care service, not to 12 um, within our society. And they need to claim that role and they need to, you know, understand that that's a really huge body of knowledge that they have that nobody else in society has. And, yes, you have paediatricians or child psychologists, etc., but often they're looking at children with pathology rather than, you know, well children. And that's what, like, who, who are the experts on well children if not early education and care staff? So I want them to claim that role as a way of advocating for themselves and also not just advocating for themselves but as a way of saying, yeah, we actually are experts at something. This is important. I do have a body of knowledge that nobody else in society does. And my third thing is coming at it from as a feminist in that and as a, a fact of feminist and a mother, I knew nothing about children when I had my own children. I lived in a different city from my family. I was isolated. I know, knew nobody else with a child. I'd never held a child before I held my first child. Now, that might, you know, some people might go, wow, you know, but for other people, that's a very common story. We don't live in the way that we used to live. We don't have access to, you know, to mothers and grandparents telling us not to worry. And I'm sure that every day I walked into my daughter's childcare centre, she didn't go to, um, sorry, early education care centre, although it was called childcare back then, I'm sure. Um, when I walked in there, every single day, I'd look for reassurance that I wasn't a crap parent. And that may well have been asking way too much um, from the educators, but those educators gave me that reassurance. They told me that what I was doing was okay if I needed to say, look, I'm really worried about this nappy rash. That's oh, no, we've seen much worse than that. Yeah, just whack this on it. And that, to, that caring role that they provided to me enabled me to care and educate my child, my children, actually. <laughs> so they're my three yeah, reasons as to why Liam is wrong. <laughs> I was going to say, it must be a particularly wrong post, Lisa, if you manage to go beyond the two things. I know. And find three <laughs> things that are wrong. I've clearly done a particularly bad job. But um, no, Lisa, I really, I really appreciate that and particularly sharing, I guess, the personal impact, which I guess a lot is what a lot of this comes down to. I'm going to try... You've probably given us three things we can maybe dig into a bit, Lisa, there. So firstly, I've got to remember what all three of them were specifically because I was <laughs> listening very intently. But the problem is by the time I'm listening intently to the third one, the first one's maybe gone slightly. But I think, Lisa, your first one, and we could spend a bit of time talking about this, was that uh, I think we're really talking about, I feel like as Leanne's not here, I'm, I might have to talk a little bit about research and uh, theory, which is kind of ecological systems theory. So we're talking about Bronfenbrenner here, so it's the communities. Yeah of stuff around children and that um, children come in a context of families and that educators can't just sort of, you know, either shut out families or walk away, as, as, as I think you said, sort of walk away from, you know, the centre, not 
caring or, or about what's going on with the families. Um, I think that's a really excellent point, Lisa. I think that the what what interests me though is that um, the the my my main point I think that I was trying to make with the piece, and I should, as I sort of said, and I want to say this probably a couple of times tonight because the the piece was meant to be kind of deliberately provocative. It didn't get much of a reaction, interestingly, which which is usually a good sign. I've the mark somewhere. Is that <laughs> um, we that the children, of course, come in the context of the families, and there's lots of information in the early years learning framework around. Um, you know, parents and and a child's family being their first and most important teacher. The National Quality Framework um, does specifically direct and require um, some work with supporting families in their parenting role. Um, I think that's a very important choice of words, which is, um, you know, supporting uh, families in their parenting role and particularly how that's that's, uh, communicated in the guide to the National Quality Framework is mainly the, that's around information being provided to families, and particularly about local community service organisations and resources to support parenting and family wellbeing. There is a pretty clear line, I think, in the National Quality Framework and the requirements, of particularly the National Quality Standard, around the direct support of families and sort of um, referring families on to additional support services. I guess if I yeah, think about... which really exists, don't they? Yes, well, yes, and this is probably going to be my broader point for all, my, my response to all three, Lisa, but I might come back to that. Um, so, of course, you're right. So educators in terms of their, their ethical and moral approaches to working with families is that if we know a family's struggling, we're not going to walk away. I guess my point is, though, is that is that a realistic expectation of educators to take on, and what are the drawbacks? So, are there is there is there a potential that family that that, are, that educators and services may get involved with the family beyond the point that it's ethically or professionally safe um, to do so? We know that in most states and territories, educators are mandatory reporters, um, which creates a you know often a hard line in terms of you know where um, that child protection issue should be followed up if if educators are too involved with families will it potentially blur the lines of mandatory reporting but i think the thing for me is that is that taking on a role that society is not should be funding in a different way so if i think about my qualifications um in early education so i have three separate qualifications i have certificate three i have a diploma and i have a teaching uh, education uh you know tertiary qualification not one of those, you know, trained me to They're give... They're called degrees, not They're called degrees. I can't remember. It's been, it's, it's been a while since I've done it. Um, I'd probably fail it again now if I went back to do it. But the um, none of those, you know, gave me direct, you know, training or skills around supporting parenting. Um, and if I remember all of those things, mostly it was around, you know, making sure you could link families into particular services. I absolutely... that You know, we, we of course, have to see the children... Holistically, and this might sound a bit sort of harsh, but to my to my view, we only need. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say this is my view. I, I should say this is something I want. I want us to at least be able to discuss. Is that do we only really need to know as much about families, and do we only need really to be directing families to support in as much as that helps us do the work we're actually trained and qualified to do, which is support the learning and well-being of children? Shouldn't other parts of society be helping families when they've got issues? Yeah, and maybe they should, but yeah, they those other parts don't exist. So why does this fall on the sector? This is I remember one of the early discussions we had in the podcast was around that concept of sort of flexible 
early education. So this comes up again every few years where there's a study or a pilot or a trial. So there are issues in society with people doing shift work and all these kinds of things. And the early education sector seems to be the first sector that people run to to go, well, you'll just have to be more flexible. You'll have to do this. You'll have to do X, Y, Z, rather than, you know, a discussion with employers or a discussion with, you know, politicians and the broader community going, well, there's an issue here that needs to be resolved. Is there a different way we can, we can, we can resolve it? I think my overall point is why is the sector, which is already so stretched and um, under-supported, you know, sort of expected to go the extra mile here? I think because it's, yeah, like it's an easy ent- entry point. It's a soft landing point for families. They already trust services to look after their children. So trusting them with the interior of what relationships are like, what stresses are on the family, what their economic situation is. Hey, you know what yeah, what every family in your service is earning anyway by their CCS rates. So <laughs> yeah. um, there's no secrets there and yet you're not as threatening as Centrelink or, you know, people with power over them. See, I worry that this is potentially feeding into one of the issues we're facing with the uh, with trying to become more professional as a sector. So families are still viewing the services not as education services, but as primarily around caring services. Is that creating a dynamic where we're enabling a lot of this stuff? So my, one of the points I make in the in the article, I think, or I made it in my own head at some point, and I'll make it on the podcast now, you know, is that um, there's no expectation that I would be able to rock up to my child's teacher at the local primary and just start sort of going on about um, the various issues I'm having as a family. The school's funded and supported and would have community um, sector workers. You know, I certainly couldn't just walk into the principal's office and start going on and on. But we sort of, this is kind of expected in early education. And I wonder if this is because... We fundamentally. But isn't that one of the beauties of early education? Well, that there isn't that, you know, no, we're just here to teach your children. We don't give a stuff about how you're raising them. Yeah, like, isn't that. I think it's good in some cases, but I think it also, there are also drawbacks to it. And one is no, additional, no, no, no. additional work I don't, and resourcing I don't think for educators. You are. I think what you're saying is um, that. Educators and teachers aren't trained for this role and they certainly aren't compensated for this role. But I don't think you're saying, well, I don't want you to say they shouldn't be the ones doing it. Oh, well, let's have that discussion because I, is it, well, it, so if, if educators and directors aren't qualified for this work, is it safe for them to be doing it? Well, and then is it a question of changing what they're taught? Hey, think... I keep looking at some of the stuff that's coming up that people are being taught in their Cert 3. Look, <laughs> have you ever have you looked at the, the diploma qualification about um, prepare for assessment and rating? Oh, no. It's the most bizarre <laughs> set of competencies that I've ever seen in my life. It came across my desk this week and I went, like, 
who would be able to do all this stuff and why would anyone want to do it? <laughs> and it doesn't help you in the least to be assessed and rated. <laughs> well, chance, everyone, have a look at that document and think, who wrote it? So you know, who decided they were the competencies that you needed? <laughs> but is this, but, uh, I mean, and this one might be one of our most fundamental sort of points of disagreement about early education, Lisa, is that um, I I don't necessarily think, given where the sector is at now, that this is, that the sector, I would find, if the, if the cost of the professionalism of the sector, which would include increased wages and, um, you know, professional respect and value and, call, and study and um, professional development for educators would be that we lose some of the more caring, nurturing aspects of the work i'm probably in favor of that now what i what i should say before because i'm I, you're going to want to leap in and i'm going to let you have a chat in a sec i think the problem is what you're talking about is a service that doesn't exist in australia which is what it doesn't you know it doesn't exist in any sort of um uh, embedded form which is an integrated service for children and families if that's the service we want then that's what we should have but that's but that's not what we have at the moment early education <laughs> services are, uh, are funded for and are trained and qualified by uh, you know are filled with trained and qualified children's educators not family support workers you know i, I kind of think that this is partially an age related difference of opinion because I think when you went through your training and went through, did your degree, the education part was a lot more crystallised. I think if if there was an older teacher like Leanne around at the moment, she'd be possibly going, oh, it all kind of runs together a little bit. Certainly a lot of people would argue that you know, the caring part is an essential part of the education part and that the caring extends just from, you know, the, the caregiving side of it, like wiping bums and noses and putting sunscreen on and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think, to... I think, I think to me, not to interrupt, Lisa, but that, that to me has never really been a dichotomy. The reason um, why education is such an important term for me is because education comes with an implied ethic of care. Um, Peter Moss talks about this. So it's not about education or care. It's but about it saying education but, but has an ethic of care. You pointed out the difference between schools and early childhood care. Sense. Yes, but because Early the ethic, education case. because the education with the ethic of care is about children, not about families. One of the things that worries me is that because I think this seeps into a whole range of other stuff is that the market model we have in Australia implies that the focus is not actually on children; it's about the people who are paying the bills, families. So this can include things yeah, like sure, yeah, yeah, and I'd a, I'd agree with you there. The, yeah, you know, it does. You know, as soon as a family becomes a client, then the most important part of the client, you know, or customer is the one that pays the bills. I get that. But if one is really focused on the child, then you only have the child for, you know, a small proportion of their day. You've got to care about what's happening to them in the rest of that day. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not suggesting no one should care about what happens to children the rest of the day. Well, I guess my question would be, why is this the sector's 
responsibility when it's so underfunded, it's so under-resourced, and there are meant to be, you know, services out there to support families. Yeah, but, the, but Liam, you know as well as I do that there isn't services out there. You know as well as I do that heaps of children come to their education care services without having had, you know, a meal, that they come with, you know, clothes that need washing, that they come without having been washed themselves. And it's kind of like, isn't this somewhat a, a middle-class way to look at it that, you know, we're there for education and we can't, like, you know, the first thing to do to educate a child is make sure that they're safe. And if they're in a family where there's domestic abuse and violence happening, they're not going to learn a thing at your at your centre, no matter how good the early education and care is. I, look, I absolutely agree, Lisa. And, 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 you know, and fortunate enough to work for you know, a community-based not-for-profit that, you know, has a very, very large number of children in exactly those situations. One of the points I think that we need to think about, uncomfortable as it might be, though, is that because you're right, because educate, because good people working in the sector will do this work because it has to be done, are we actually then stopping society and governments and communities from going, bloody hell, there's a huge gap here that's being filled by people who aren't trained to do it, who are not paid to do it, and who are in no way supported to do it. If that work stopped, would we then go, oh, actually, there's actually a huge amount of stuff we need to fix here, and that it's in, that the fact, you know, children, um, if they're lucky enough to even be able to attend an early education centre due to the stupid funding system we have, are facing all those challenges. Um, then that's actually something that needs to be addressed at the societal level rather than continually pushing this onto early education services who have a job to do that's prescribed under law in terms of education and uh, you know and learning support for children. But because this work, because of the nature of the work with young children, and I do think as well the nature of the work being that you know it's 96, 97% women who are doing this work, there's this unwritten but expected approach to despite the fact that children are there for their entire day and we might see we might see the parent for you know five or ten minutes if we're lucky this sort of overbalancing in terms of focusing on what's happening with families as well okay well let's look at what happens when a child gets um or when a education care service spots that a child has a learning delay of some sort. But I think, well, so Who Lisa, gives I should the well, support to the family. But Lisa, but that that's fitting well within the remit of the the work that educators are doing within children. So identifying learning challenges or identifying how children can be supported. I think the things I'm talking about. Yeah, but, and my, my but hang on. Once that. the once once you know you say to a parent. Yeah, you know, look, you know, um, have you considered, you know, that maybe it might be worth talking to someone about, you know, young Johnny, yeah? As soon as you do that, who then supports the, the, the family through the process of getting a diagnosis, with dealing with that diagnosis, with setting up the supports, etc.? It's the education and care service, and who else could it be? And is that 
you know, like if you're arguing, yeah, well, that's clearly within the remit, why should the educators be the one, you know, giving mum the tissues when she's crying with grief for the child that she, you know, thought she had and suddenly no longer has? Who, you know, like there's a lot more than just support for that child's learning that happens at that point. I agree. I think one of the complicated parts of this question for me and why I, you know, I, I'm, I wanted to write about it and then talk about it with you tonight, Lisa, is that it's very difficult to argue with you on these points from an emotional and sort of, and, and sorry, practical perspective. So this is what's happening. And because of the way our society is set up and structured, that this is what's happening. But is that asking a lot? Of, of oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and look, and that's where I find it hard to argue with you because, of course, it is. You know, it's it's asking way too much, and and not just is it asking too much. Are all educators and teachers equipped to do it? And the answer would have to, to that would have to be no as well. Some of them do this kind of work brilliantly, and others, you know, no, they're much better with children. You know, keep the adults out of this. <laughs> I have this kind of romantic notion of an education care centre being a, a part of the community that helps a family raise a child. Mm. See, it's fascinating because I think my view in general is that early education services are integral parts of the community that support children. And I, I think that's all we can. And, and I wonder if, and Liam, I'm prepared to accept that maybe I'm biased because that's not what I expected my education and care centre to be 28 years ago when, as an inexperienced parent, I walked in. Uh, but I think you're right, but I think that expectation is still there, Lisa. I think that expectation is within the sector itself. Um you know, I think it, it, if we look at this, you know, the stuff in the national quality uh, standards and, and the things that we focus on, there's actually very little in there. There's a couple of elements in Quality Area 6 that talk specifically about, you know, sort of engagement and interactions with families. But it's the one that has the overwhelming amount of additional things that take place in it. You know, critical reflection is hard to prove. It's pretty difficult for an early education centre not to prove, you know, engagement interactions with families because it's a hugely in my view, disproportionately overbalanced part of our practice um, for a variety of reasons, which we've kind of already talked about. Some of that is the market model um, and some of it is the, exactly what we sort of talked about, sort of community expectations. I'm not necessarily thinking those expectations are wrong, although I'd be fascinated to know if it wasn't, you know, too personal a question. Can you think about, like, do, 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 you, do you think you know why that expectation was there? Was that something you experienced before? Was that something you'd heard or was that just... Or, or, or did the centre itself sort of present itself that way? No, I think that the educators presented themselves that way and um, they, uh, you know, they certainly filled that gulf for me, you know, and they did it like they, yeah, they presented them, you know, they, they cared and that care, I was so in need of that care that, you know, it, it, poured all over me um but 
I think it was also because when when you have a child, when you become a family, you're a trainee family for quite a while. Yeah, like you don't know how to do anything from you know, changing nappies to you know organizing school bags and you know organizing the equipment that a child needs to bring with them in their backpacks to an early education care center right you don't have those skills and suddenly you go to a place where a lot of other children are where a lot of other families are and where you can learn that stuff so you go out of the isolation of the family you've created into a wider group of families and it's the it's the only place where you get that especially as a working parent mm it's really interesting and that, yes, I think that idea of, um, you know, a community coming together within a centre is obviously part of the National Quality Framework and it's part of a lot of the research around um, sort of what we talked about before. So, you know, the ecological system series and those, that kind of stuff. So I guess maybe I, I might pose a different question to you, Lisa, which is around, I guess, another equity concern. So I think... Again, sorry, I'm trying to summarise your thoughts and not reword them for you as a typical bloke would do. And then, and then claim, I'm not going to claim them as my own, though, but is that, you know, services provide this important function for um, families, uh, particularly new families and and or, or families who may be um, disengaged or, or, you know, not have a lot of support um, locally. That So we know from the statistics in Australia that it was, it's around uh, 20% of services aren't meeting the national quality standards. So is there an equity concern here that some, because this, I think we can maybe agree, Lisa, that this kind of support for families is a bit unofficial and certainly isn't, you know, isn't resourced or qualified. I mean, some services do better than others. So are some families then, because we're not doing this, you know, in a sort of structured, formal way, that some families are getting great centres who do this really well and some aren't? Yeah, I think it's possible, but I think I'm, I have this image in my head of um, someone who used to be uh, the, the chairperson of uh, a private provider's peak, and I remember him saying, oh, yeah, I always used to stand on the veranda as an owner, as every parent came in and and welcomed, you know, and I think he actually used the words little Johnny. I think that's why that name stuck in my <laughs> head before. Welcome little Johnny as he came, you know, because that was guaranteeing my fees. And I was horrified at the time, you know, with the mercenary nature of, you know, greeting a child because he wanted to get his money. But I think that, you know, services do it and do it for a range of reasons. So even I suspect that the services that are rated working towards are holding on to their, you know, are good at looking after families. But what is this is the other thing. This is the slippery slope for me. So what is support for families? Because I think the problem is some because of the the model we have. You know, some services will see that as you know, you know, 
you know, doing drive-in drop-offs or something for children or, you know, free coffees or something on the way in. Um, one of the things I, I think about um, because, you know, we, we have some approaches at the organisation I work with, which are quite different than those across the ACT. So we, as, as regular listeners of the podcast will know, um, my views on, you know, learning uh, documentation software and those kind of things, we don't provide them at Northside. And we are really clear with families when they start that we won't and we don't. And, if it, and that if that's the kind of service they want, that it's not for here. And one of the reasons we do that is because we think those programs provide too much uh, emphasis on the family's view of the documentation when the National Quality Framework is quite clear that documentation is about ed supporting educators in their learning and teaching roles, supporting children. So we're documenting essentially to analyze and assess and plan for children's learning. That's focused on educators, not families. Now that's viewed quite, um, you know, it's interesting, one-on-one -on -one conversations with families, they absolutely get it. But when we talk in the sector, that's viewed really strangely. And I think it's because there's this mindset in the sector, which is we prioritise the interests of parents and families, in many cases, over children. Um, I've, I've wandered down a path there. But I think what you're talking about is that one, if we, if we, if we are willing to embrace this idea that early education services, that supporting families above and beyond what's specifically required to ensure their children well no, i'm going to take that back because you can make that argument for anything so if you're going to make the argument that supporting children's learning and well-being will require supporting the family then that sort of argument doesn't end because you, you're absolutely right you know children can't learn if they're not safe um if if we're going beyond what's required in the national quality framework which again is pretty clear that it's about providing uh, resources and links to supporting um to uh, supporting parenting because of the sector we have, which is a mixed market model, which is a model that is paid for by parents. So at the end of the day, the parents are paying the bill. I just worry that opens us, that, that there's no way for that to be effective because every service will implement it differently. People aren't trained and qualified to do it. And the, the sector will still be in this weird position of plugging gaps that should be probably filled elsewhere. I don't think I made a very strong point there, Lisa. I'm not sure what I was trying to say. Okay, what about, what about you haven't rebutted my point of I want educators to to claim that space oh, as the yes. experts on children. That was half an hour ago, Lisa. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed I remember the first two points. <laughs> um, I, like, do you see any role there? I th yes, um, and as usual, Lisa, you've cheated by bringing in advocacy, which I find very hard to rebut. Um, I think that's true. I know but my audience, Liam. I think that, again, and maybe I'm being contrarian about this and maybe, um, again, I'm sort of deliberately trying to provoke a particular response from the sector who I would at least like to engage on some of these issues. I worry that I would rather the sector was be, was the winning the advocacy battle because of what's good for children, not what's good for children and then, by extension, families. If, does that make sense? This is probably entirely semantic, but I worry that um, if, the only, if the only justification for educators' knowledge of children is that's great for families, that actually frustrates me because that's not... It's not why I'm doing stuff. No, but I, mean, I, I know it's not what you're saying. I think I know it's, it's slightly different. Like, let's look at, you know, let's look at vets, right? They're the experts on animals, aren't they? No one would argue that a vet isn't 
the expert on domestic animals. So what do they do? They go and, you know, uh, um, they go on TV. You know, we have vet shows on TV. They, you know, if anyone wants to know about, um, you know, sickness in domestic animals, they'll get the vet on the radio and the vet will talk about it, etc. But if someone tries to go, okay, children, who is the experts on children? I don't know whether they'd absolutely think of early education and care educators or teachers. I don't think they'd necessarily say, oh, we should get an early childhood teacher to talk about this. They're much more likely to go outside of the profession and look for other experts. But who are the experts on children? But I think this proves my point, Lisa, because I think the reason that doesn't happen is the the expertise of the work in the first five years isn't viewed as expertise in its own right. It's, it's when it is viewed, it is only viewed as sort of in terms of how it benefits the, you know, the economy or parents or sort of other things. That's the, the reason people aren't going to educators, um, I think, is because of that. So, you know, if we think about the vets, no one's bringing on, no one's sort of, vets are valued for their expertise in that area. They're not valued for the expertise in the area and how that helps the pet's owners. So no one's bringing no one's bringing vets on to to have that discussion. No, but but how do they demonstrate it? So what you were talking about in the original art article was providing parents with information about children, you know, and like you know, giving them information about children's reading or children's play or children's whatever. And even though that's for the benefit of families, it's the demonstration of we are the experts. But I think there's a there's a dichotomy here, though, because I think what you're saying is that why aren't educators being sought out for their expertise? But the reason we're having this discussion is because I think they are. So the point I'm making is they are being sought out for this area of expertise, which in that, which, but it may be that they're not being... So, sorry, it may be that they're not being supports that uh, they're not being sought out specifically because of knowledge they have about learning and education in the first five years. It's because they're seen as primarily a caring role, supporting parents by having their children there. This may be a semantic distinction, but I think there is a difference there for me about how that expertise is viewed and valued. I think. It's either well, yeah. So it's it's it may not be valued in terms of people with TV cameras going out and going. Let's ask about learning in the first five years. But I think what they what what families who are seeking additional support or families who are feeling you know as cared for as you did, Lisa, um, you know, are maybe seeing it not from the expertise of the child, about expertise about the child, but about a particular role we expect them to perform because they're primarily women and. They're working with young children, which I just think as a community, we just don't see as primarily focused about learning and well-being. We still see it as care. Yeah, and that's kind of hard to argue with. <laughs> Did I win? All right, well, that's, the end. that's, that's, that's it for the fortnight, everyone. It's been, uh, it's been great to do. No. <laughs> no, I don't think you've won because, look, you know, okay, let me just talk about feminism for a minute. Where on you earth? may have longer than a minute, Lisa. Where on earth do women are women supposed to learn about what young children need? 
now in this society. And you can say, yes, but it shouldn't fall on the educators. But if not there, then where? If it's not the people who they entrust with the care of their child, then where do they learn about it? We so accept. Lisa, you, you know a lot of centres out there. Do you really want some of the centres you know about teaching, you know, doing this stuff? No, but I know that it's really hard. Like, you don't just have a child and suddenly become keyed into supports for families. You don't have a child and suddenly come up with all the knowledge you need. You don't have a child and instantly become a family, even though that's what you've become. You know, you need to learn how to play that role. And somebody needs to help families and someone needs and look I'll give you I'll give you an even greater example from my own experience right I had this baby went back to work I was very lucky I could take my baby to work with me for the first few years in those few years I still didn't know any women with children I barely knew any women and I met the person who was going to become my best friend at the early education care service because we were always running late and so we signed waivers to enable <laughs> us to pick up each other's children and wait in the car park because we great couldn't afford the fines. <laughs> but I was so isolated before then. I joined, I'd, I'd heard about playgroups and I thought this will give me another woman with a child. I only wanted one. That's all I needed, just someone that I could, you know, bond with in some way over this enormous thing that had happened to me. And every playgroup that I went to wasn't exactly running where it was advertised to be on the internet, which was very young in those days. So I, you know, like I, I gave up and I couldn't find anyone to support me in my role as a mother. And then suddenly I walked into this childcare centre and there was heaps of other women with mothers and some of them were as isolated as me because they'd had to go back to work and so they didn't have time to hang around mothers' groups, as they were called in those days, and bond with other mothers. They'd had their baby and essentially had spent their um, maternity leave in a house by themselves with their baby, then had gone back to work and had no one to support them. And yes, it's a caring role, but it's also, it's an educating parents role to be parents. And I just, you know, if we say let's strike and not do it, then who's going to support the leases? Who's going to support people? without any other, you know, ways of discovering how to parent. Yeah. Look, I, I, Lisa, I think, you know, as usual, an, an amazing personal story, which is to say, again, thank you for, <laughs> for sharing with all the listeners. Um, I think 
Yeah, and uh, clearly, but maybe I'm maybe I'm really bizarre. Maybe that that was a really weird story, and no other parent has that same oh, sense of isolation. Lisa, that, that story but, will be resonating with as as someone who's been a director myself and as someone who works with families right now. That, that, so just to be clear, that story resonates strongly. Uh, what I want to be clear about is, and again, and I know I'm saying this over and over again, there's some deliberate provocation coming here from me because I think this is something we at least the the fact that Lisa, you and I have you know, touched on a whole range of things tonight and we really struggled, I think, to to sort of land on a particular point. I do want us to to get to a summary soon. Is that, and I point this out in the article, that educators and directors are doing this work and in many cases they're doing it exceptionally well, but they are exactly what you have just described, Lisa, which is a sense of community connection, uh, a, a, a place where children and families can feel safe. I don't think we should underestimate just what that means um and you've you know mentioned similar things i guess the point that the the problem of where i am at now particularly over the last and maybe i credit you and leanne and this podcast for this but when i i find myself thinking more and more uh, and i should say as well you know particularly during and sort of in this weird um time with COVID 19 it's just what we're asking of educators and the sector and that we seem to continually be going, well, the sector can do that and we have a gap here in our society which should really be filled by better funding and qualified professionals to do so. But because society refuses to do that, you know, the the centre down the road that works with kids, they'll, they'll be able to do that because those people are amazing and yeah, they'll do so all that I work. don't think that anyone's actually doing the asking. I think it's a, like nobody even knows that there's an issue that's being filled and maybe that's what where the summary is, Liam, that we need to make this role, this really vital role, more prominent, more um, obvious, more spoken about. I know when I first joined this sector in the kind of weird quasi role that I have, we used to say that um, community childcare centres, because they were not-for-profit, et cetera, were really good at... Um, you know, at creating a community of children and families and whatever, and that often that that you know, like within a community, they beca- those centres became the place where friendships were forged, where women who'd been out of the work workplace, you know, started. Um, to join a fundraising committee and then eventually joined the committee and regained the skills that they needed to join the workforce. And we spoke about all those kind of community building um, uh, things that that centres did. We don't tend to talk about that anymore in the face of massive privatisation and in the face of the NQF. That's kind of fitted into that, you know, quality area six, but it's, it isn't, we used to really, it used to be a thing that was really important for centres to do and to talk about. I don't think we talk about it as much anymore. I think that's the thing for me. You're entirely right. No one's specifically coming out and saying, early education sector, this is now your responsibility. It's more... I think it's more embedded than that, that I think the read that because of, you know, decades of neoliberalism where services have just been either stripped back or, you know, are, are fee for service, we have these huge gaps. You know, all those things you were talking about, Lisa, they're about not knowing 
you know, the the the, the challenges of new parents and engagement. Um, you know, there are, you know, there's a whole bunch of, you know, researched and peer-reviewed and evidence-based programs that are demonstrated to support new parents in their role. Um, the choice not to have them, you know, is is a government's choice. So that's a choice that, that where they've left that gap and because that gap is there and because early education professionals are amazing, empathetic, professional and moral people, you know, they're doing a lot of that work themselves. Um, I think the thing for me is and what the, I guess the point of the article is saying that exactly what you said, Lisa, which was let's at least acknowledge this work is happening. Let's at least acknowledge this is yet more sort of unpaid labour that women are doing in our community and that it absolutely, from my, my perspective of the of the issue of feminism, is more from that angle, from the women who are doing the work, not the women who are getting the benefits of doing the work. Um, but that's probably a, a, another hour discussion we could have, Lisa, <laughs> about um, how society, you know, is expert at um, the patriarchy. Society is expert at setting women, women up against each other. Um, I think what, what what this comes down for me is that there are ways that this can work. There are models, there is funding, there is ways that, you know, we can have the best of both worlds. My challenge is that in the in the, the the current reality of the situation means that we are asking this as an additional workload for educators and i'm really struggling with that the more time i spend thinking about advocacy the more time i spend thinking about educators but we do know there are integrated models out there there are centers and models of practice that include a provision of early education where educators can focus on what they're qualified to do which is support the learning and well-being of children while they're with them but they're often paired with you know social workers and uh, development specialists and all these other groups of people and sometimes including RTOs and where exactly that work you were talking about there Lisa about you know parents getting a qualification um, I'll include a link and I'd really recommend uh, anyone who's interested in the discussion we've had tonight checking it out um, the Penn Green uh, research base in the UK which does a lot of this work which is a combination of an early education centre an RTO for parents um, social work and all these different kinds of things but they require the government to fund it and they require um, really clear delineations of role. So who's supporting who at what time? So the families are coming into one place and there are different professionals doing different work. What I would like to see, at the end of all this for me, what it comes back to is I would like to see educators supported and professionally paid to do the work that they're actually trained and qualified to do and being able to focus on that without having to shoulder the burden of a society that, you know, is just refusing to, you know, fund vital services or do... Or, or support parents when they become parents. Yeah, and I wouldn't argue with that. Well, we got there in the end, Lisa. Some sort of <laughs> sense of agreement. <laughs> but um, that, Lisa, I really, I think that is a, it's a, it's a really complex discussion. It was, you know, it was the reason that I wanted to get some of those thoughts out on paper because I think we, uh, there, there are a lot of gaps out there that the sector is having to fill, and they are important, and that, is, and that, that work I mean, is so one important. Of the things that that strikes me is that when schools do this kind of stuff they are very vocal about doing it i remember a few years ago when you know schools started realizing that children were coming to school without breakfast then they all started you know advertising their breakfast programs as a unique selling point for their school and maybe you know like it's we need to talk more about these roles that that early education care services are doing so that people are aware that they're doing it and that there is this hole there. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. 
Well, it might be great. Look, uh, for listeners out there, if, that, if, if that's some of the work you're doing or if you can think of ways that you're sort of providing that, I think it's what we need to uh, – maybe that's where we sort of land with this. It isn't that – you know, this work will take place and it always will because of the, the amazing people that do it. But maybe we need to get a lot better at calling it out and saying this is actually a gap we're filling. It would be great if you fill that gap, but given you won't, um, we're doing this work. So, you know, listeners, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter. Send us an email if you know if you've got thoughts on any episode. But you know if that's particular work that you're doing, um, maybe let's at least sort of make that work visible and and highlight it. And we can uh, thank educators for yet one more thing in our society that they're doing and doing for such little money. Such little money. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for that discussion. Thank you. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.